And there's a message from that man telling me to come to this room and to clean it. But the woman there is to be called later that day and moved to a new tower. And there's a message from that man telling me to come to this room and to clean it. But the woman there is to be called later that day and moved to a new tower. And I dress myself. Welcome to Radical Listening. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. That's Phil Johnson Live on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Clifton Holtznagel. I'm the co-host. And today we have a very special guest. Um, now, this person I've seen around town um, in plenty of shows um, and is absolutely hilarious. But today we are actually going to talk about um, his directing work. Uh, it's Isaac Lamb. And you may recognize him from YouTube, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Outage. Yeah. Again. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Arlington. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's just welcome to the show Isaac Lamb. That's good to be here. How are you doing? Well, I was just t- telling you guys, I um, I have six-month-old twins yeah. that are freshly baked and newly out of the oven, and um, so I'm not sleeping a ton right now. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit sleep deprived <laughs> and um, overjoyed most of the time, but but yeah, like very very much on the edge of um, feeling like a crazy person most of the time. <laughs> I yeah, I, I can see that now that you have children do you feel like you're gonna have to like move away from being in the theater as much or how, do, how does that affect your theater your relationship to the theater i mean children will move you regardless of what your plans are they're gonna move you no matter where you whether you're a theater artist or a uh you know policeman or a firefighter or whatever sure. um so I could I could sit here and say, well, they're not gonna move me, but they will. They will. They have. They already have. You're not sleeping. I'm not sleeping. Yeah, <laughs> but I would. Um, but it's it's really important to me that I that I. It's important to Amy and myself, my wife and myself, that um, that they grow up with a father who is a theater artist, and mm-hmm. that they are a part of that world, and that they understand what I do for a living and for my art, and um, and that that it's such a huge part of who I am. It will always be a huge part of, my, of who I am. And, and for them to know any other version of me would f- be to not know their father. And so yeah. I think, you know, as much as they will, you know, the, the needs and necessities of raising children will like push you in certain directions. They're going to be well-versed in what I do. And, yeah. um, and I, I would, I couldn't survive without theater. I have to just keep doing it. That's why I'm still doing it. Are you going to raise them to be theater babies? Oh, that's a that has such a negative connotation. Theater, ba- theater baby, <laughs> like what do you mean? I just get glimpses of Gypsy, you know, like <laughs> well, yes. sing out, Louise. Well, that's um, what I meant. Yeah, yeah, I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, Amy and I, my wife was a professional dancer for you know twenty five years or something, mm-hmm. and you know danced on Broadway and everything, and. So very early on when we were first dating, we were like, our children will not be dancers mm-hmm. because she just understands the pressures and the like insanity that surrounds the dance world. Yeah. Um, and the more, <laughs> the more I, I think about it, I'm like, maybe, maybe they won't be theater artists either. <laughs> maybe dad, dad will be enough and, uh, and they'll grow up to be. They're um, going to rebel and become architects. You do, yeah. yeah or just thinking, <laughs> or, you know, engineers. Nothing, nothing would make me happier than for them to have like stability and health insurance. And <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. yeah. So I don't know, but no, I don't know. I, in all seriousness, I'll let them do whatever they want to do probably. So Arlington, let's talk about it. How, how did you get involved with the project, and 
and yeah, just tell me about how how that that process got started. Enda Walsh is the playwright, and um, he's an Irish playwright. And Third Rail uh, was has produced two of his shows already and has sort of circled around many of the other shows that he's written and they've all been in contention at some point for season selection and we're just big fans of his writing he's such a he's just a mad Irishman you know Mm -hmm. and he writes these really peculiar plays and they're very language driven and they're very um he has a very like specific point of view on the world Mm -hmm. and um and he writes a lot about like the stories we tell. I mean, his whole, his, all of his plays in some respect are about how we define ourselves through stories or we, we trap ourselves with stories or we grow through stories or we um, tell the same stories over and over and over and over and over and over again mm. to ourselves and, and what effect that has on us and our humanity. Um, and if, if there's any better metaphor I think for what it is we do as theater artists I'm not sure what it is so mm-hmm. if his work has always really drawn us as a company to it and so anytime he re- he has a new play out it feels like one of us is like you know on the cutting edge of getting a copy of it and and trying to read it and bring it to the company so I had I had read in the New York Times about this play when it was um it hadn't yet had a New York production but it was um at the Galway Arts Festival mm-hmm and it was a new Enda Walsh play. And the thing that really piqued my interest about it was that um, it had this section in the middle, this 20 minute section in the middle where there was no speaking. Yeah. And um, and th- that was sort of the basis of the article I had read. Like what is this 20 minute, you know, ostensibly dance piece doing in the middle of an Enda Walsh play? Uh, you know, a, a guy who's known for writing these like insanely long speeches. And, um, and so I was immediately intrigued by it and then scrambled to get myself a copy of it and did and then I read it and it and it terrified me in that way that's like I really want to do this because yeah. it scares the crap out of me um, and and so I brought it to the, I brought it to the company and, and I encouraged everybody to read it and at one point I think Maureen our artistic director and myself and Rebecca Lingefelter who ended up playing Isla mm-hmm. in the production we sat in this conference room in the Sunnyside building and the three of us just read it together and it was like oh, we, we read it in like 60 minutes on like a hot afternoon mm-hmm. when none of us had any time but we were like we've got to get a, we've got to read this play out loud and just see if it's something we want to do and we read it and it was like we were like 10 pages in and we were just like we're doing this play <laughs> um so it, it was a it was not a, like a huge leap for us because it's end of walsh's work but it also feels like a bit of a departure for him as a playwright. It's a little different than his other work. And so that was intriguing to me. For people who may not have made it to Arlington, mm-hmm. how would you describe this play or this production? It's um, it's a it's a time and space not too far removed from our own. Um, it, in the script, it specifies as no particular time or place. Um, but it feels very... Um, not dissimilar to our current time or a time not too far in the future from now. Um, but it is a, dis- it's set in a dystopia of, mm-hmm. of some kind. And, um, and it's a play about um, what happens when you keep people in spaces, whether they be pr- prisons or mental hospitals or um, whatever the space, this room that we're watching people in is, it's ostensibly a waiting room, but um 
that the impact of a space on a human body over time in isolation, um, it's an examination of the effect of those things. Yeah. And, um, and, and so was that the idea for the set that we saw was that they were in a waiting yeah. room? Yeah. So it's, it is in the script. It's sort of, he says it's a, a waiting, he says it calls it a waiting room, I think. Um, but it functions in all these crazy ways, right? There's some of it is is really um, described in the in the page the pages of the script, like the three benches the three bench seats are mm -hmm. described, the the um, the ticket machine, and then number readout is you know the now serving kind of thing is mm -hmm. described in the set. There's a radio that's mm -hmm. described. So there are all these um, there's all these a microphone where they go and speak into and right. to tell their stories so all of these things are kind of described in the set or prescribed by the playwright um but then there's in, in all of enda's work there's obviously like massive amounts left up to your imagination yeah um because those four elements don't really fill a room so yeah. how do you make the room the thing that it's supposed to be mm -hmm. and one of the big challenges for our set designer peter cassander was that we were in the coho space which is so much smaller than the initial like the space they originally did it in in new york city is saint anne's warehouse which is this big mm -hmm. you know well-appointed theater space um and they did it end stage so you know there was a fourth wall between the room and the audience and that allows for a certain amount of special effects and tricks like an ease of doing some of those things and we didn't have any of that um distance in the coho and yeah. so he made the decision really early on um and we we thought this was a really interesting way to go of, of really enclosing the room mm -hmm. and sort of make putting the audience yeah. inside the room with the people because whether you wanted to do that or not they were going to feel that way because that's that's the feeling of that tiny little thrust of yeah. the co-host space so now, what what did you want to say with this piece mm -hmm. what did you want the audience to kind of leave being like yeah okay <laughs> i don't know that's a tricky question i feel like you get into a little bit of trouble as a director okay when when you want people to walk away with a message that's specific hmm. or know? or even a feeling you know yeah i i feel like uh I mean, you always have a vision for the piece and you always have, you, I guess you have a, an idea of how it might affect people, but to sort of presuppose you could, you could control them to think a certain way sure. or to take a certain message away is, is really, it's, it's hard enough in like film where you have a lot of control over what mm -hmm. people look at and see. And it's even harder, I think in the theater, but I, I did, I am, I was struck by the fact that the, the show was actually called Arlington, a love story. There's yeah. a subtitle in it. And, um, and even though it is set in this dystopian somewhat future um, and it's in this, you know, it's a, these, these three different people in um, some kind of holding cell uh, that there is actually a love story to track through it. And I found that like really powerful um, and that it felt like what he was writing, what Enda Walsh was writing was in response to what feels like the world kind of collapsing around us and mm -hmm. all the, crap that's happening right now that terrifies you on a day-to-day -day basis yeah. and his his sort of somewhat hopeful response to that was to write a love story amidst all of the hmm. all of the dystopia and so i really was hoping I, I wanted to honor both the like the bleakness of you know a dystopian play but i also wanted to give the audience some humanity to hold mm -hmm. on to throughout the piece so I, my hope is that people walk away feeling moved by it mm -hmm. 
and not just feeling like they've been, you know, bashed over the head with misery for <laughs> for 90 minutes, but that there's some pos- there's some optimism in it to, yeah. to take away too. So what do you think it says, seeing that it is a love story, what do you think it says about society, what, what society does to love? Because it seems like that's what it's saying. It seems like something has happened and society has changed in a big way mm-hmm. and there's this love story happening. And what, what it's, what's it saying about, you know, love in our age do you think do you think it's, it's something about that because it felt like i felt like yeah it was very much about that love story about interpersonal relationships but it had a lot to say about society as a whole yeah i mean i think it's it, it draws a lot from some of the other sources of dystopian you know writing that we're familiar with of you know 1984 orwell and um you know michel foucault and you know all these all these like 20th century texts that mm-hmm. were a lot about like the industrial prison systems and um, you know the panopticon and the ways that we yeah. <coughs> we trap people and um, so it, it clearly I think is is drawing from very rich source material in order to say you know wh- what's happening right now is not so different than this yeah um, you know there's mass incarceration on a huge scale in and you know a lot of the, a lot of the story of sort of how the world in Arlington gets to it its place is highly relatable to inst- either instances in the past that have happened in human history or things you know echo things that are being said now in the socio-political realm around the world and um, and so I think it is it is definitely trying to invest some energy there but I also think he's writing um, he's writing a love story in it because because what else are we supposed to do? Yeah. You know, I, I think that, and I think there's a, there's an essence to the play that is really like love is going to find a way, you know, not to quote Jurassic Park, life finds a way, <laughs> but love will find a way um, in the most, in the most, you know, bleak of circumstances, yeah. people are going to find love and they're going to find connection and they're going to find each other. And I think he's trying to, without, he's not particularly, I think he wouldn't call himself an optimist and a Walsh, sure. <laughs> but, but I think he also doesn't feel like it's hopeless either. And I feel like the hope that is illustrated in the play is, is, and it's an open-ended question is, you know, not to ruin it for anybody, but the, you know, the ending is, is ambiguous on purpose. I think mm-hmm. you can think you could, you could read it as a happy ending. You could read it as a, um, a metaphorical ending you could read it as you know in a literal manner you could read it as a sad ending i mean there i think there there's evidence there to read it many different ways mm-hmm. but i think uh, he's doing that on purpose i think because he's saying love is not enough to save us from ourselves and also it is the only thing we have yeah um and i think he feels similarly about theater you know that it is not mm-hmm. enough to save us from these regimes and yet we were going to continue to tell ourselves stories because it's all we've got yeah now how did the um the actual movement piece and actually there's several movement there's there's several gestural kind of sections but there's definitely an extended movement piece halfway yeah. through the play uh what was the process of creating that um yeah the 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 play is broken up into three sections and mm-hmm. the middle section is wordless and um the woman who performs it kayla hansen I cast her back in the summertime of, of last year. And really we, um, I took, I took her as the, as the audition piece for that performer. I had, um, a lot, I saw a lot of dancers and a lot of movers and a lot of people who were interested in physical theater and physical storytelling. 
and um, and I asked them to create something. Can you hear that on the mm-hmm. microphone? I think probably. Yeah, that's that's, that's my <laughs> debut. That's there you my, go. <laughs> that's my that's my A theater children. artist after uh, all. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, she <laughs> she's got pipes. She's already on a theater podcast. Yeah, sing out, Louise. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I uh, so I asked the the auditioners who came in for the part to to create something that was five minutes long. Mm-hmm. That was just like because I uh, one of the things I decided early on was I wasn't super interested in choreography. Like mm-hmm. I, I wasn't really interested in hiring a choreographer per se who was going to set a, a dance piece and then have that be on a dancer's body. Um, I felt really strongly that that center section should feel a lot closer to sections one and three, and and. F- and it should feel as human as that. Like it shouldn't feel like a modern dance piece all of a sudden. It should feel like a person experiencing something um, rather than just like, we're gonna shift forms of storytelling, you know? Um, It wanted to feel like organic to the piece. And so I wanted it to be devised. And so I wanted a a performer who who had that in their toolbox. So Kayla came in with a five minute piece that I was really moved by in the audition process. So we actually used that five minute section and I, I gave some parameters that were like, you know, it needs to have this, that, and the other thing. It needs to be this long and has a moment where you, of where you fly and a moment where you die and a moment of magic and, you know, kind of like a basic structure for devising. And she created this thing that then became the seed for the 20 minute piece. And, and then with the other kind of, clowning section where you know he's walking back and forth and changing the outfits and all that was that kind of a similar process or yeah i mean that was just me and the actors so Mm -hmm. there's a there's a sequence in in scene one where rebecca dances with a puppet that she's Mm -hmm. created um that was just a, a little bit of choreography for me and then some you know some clown bits that we threw at it and mm-hmm. you know just tr- kind of patched it together and then similarly with Nick in the clothes and in scene three it was uh the game is prescribed right. in the script it okay. says a bunch of clothes fall from the ceiling and he has to try them on as fast as possible um but then we were like okay but that song is you know two and a half minutes long so how do we make this interesting or how do we make <laughs> it how do we make yeah. it a thing rather than just this like strange event that happens okay and so that was a collaborative process between like the costume designer jenny ampersand would bring in a piece and be like "Ooh, i like that that looks like he looks like the gorton's fisherman you know mm-hmm. and like <laughs> then that would erupt into like okay he you know cast the reel and reel yourself across the stage okay so it was a little bit of like you know the best processes are super collaborative like this, right where somebody brings in an idea and that sparks three or four other ideas and great yeah um, I'm going to briefly kind of touch on your background and kind of know how you got here in the first <laughs> place. So how did you find your way into directing? Were you a director first? Are you an actor no, also, first? Also, like, we know you from your comedic <laughs> stylings and <laughs> curious <laughs> how you ended up directing. Yeah, exactly. Something <laughs> such a, a dark play, <laughs> which there was definitely, you definitely brought moments of humor to it. It yeah. was great. It really helped, helped it move to have those things in there. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, I, I guess I'm funny. Am I? I guess I'm funny. You're hilarious. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like as even as an actor, I've I've tried to be versatile. You yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. So I've done, yes, I've done a lot. I have done a lot of comedy and I, and I certainly have a facility with it. I think partly because I, my first professional job as an actor was this one man comedy show. Right. That I toured for like seven years. Yeah. And that was kind of like my grad school, you know, was like learning how to make thousands of people laugh, you know, mm-hmm. all sure. at once. 
Um, so yeah, I think I do have a facility with comedy in that way, but, but I really have tried to, to, you know, be as broadly skilled an artist as I can. So I do musical theater and I do, um, a lot of straight theater and, you know, certainly third rail does not always do comedies. (laughs) (laughs) Most (laughs) of the work I've done on stage for third rail has been not always funny. Um, yeah, by the way, shout out to ordinary days. I didn't know that you. Oh yeah, that was me. Yeah, that was me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I got into directing to kind of wrap that back around. I got into directing because, well, first of all, my degree is in film directing. Okay. So it wasn't theater directing, but, um, I had sort of struck out as a young 20 something to become a filmmaker. Um, it was kind of my first passion and yet like every career opportunity that came my way was as an actor. And so it just felt like after a while the universe was telling me, <laughs> this is not what you're supposed to be doing. Do this other thing. We keep giving you opportunities yeah. to do it. I also, you know, of course, love being a theater artist. And so um, so I just I just kind of followed where the universe led me. Um, but I never really lost that, like, desire to control mm-hmm. the elements of storytelling. Um, and that can be a really useful tool as an actor to that you have a brain that does that. It can also be like a really frustrating tool to be in a process where you feel like you have a really passionate and, and well founded idea about where something should go. And then not being the director, not have the voice to actually push it in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's partly why I joined third rail and, mm-hmm. and I'm so passionate about being a part of a company like that is, is regardless of position or title, we all have a voice in those in those decisions and yeah. those processes. Mm-hmm. That's a way of making work that really works for me. Mm-hmm. I feel passionately about. Um, but I also knew that eventually I was going to have to direct something because yeah. you can't. You know, it's like either you have to put up or shut up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I just kind of started small. I mean, one, the first uh, first quote unquote professional job I had as a director, I had directed in in an educational setting a, mm-hmm. a number of times, but. Um, the first time someone gave me actual money um, to direct <laughs> a, a show with adults uh, was at Lakewood. Actually, I, I um, my wife was like, I want always, I've always wanted to do Sweet Charity, and I was yeah. like, Great, I love that <laughs> show. Like I want to direct it, and so um, I pitched it to them. And I think much more because Amy was attached to it, they were like, Great, yeah, we'll do it. If, <laughs> if it means Amy will do it, yeah. we'll do it. Uh, but that was really where I got my start, and. Um, that was my first gig and and I you know I look back on it now and I'm like mortified I feel like I was like oh god I was so terrible back then but you know like work begets work yeah and so that gig got me a gig um at Oregon Children's Theater which got me a gig at Broadway Rose which got me a gig at Portland Playhouse which you know it's like each one of those things um leads to another opportunity and and it's really just like if you if you can make enough work eventually the people you want to work for are going to see your work if you keep inviting them to that work and (laughs) that's what that's what continues to happen for me so that's great so you're kind of maybe you're hitting this um arc of directing you're starting to hit the yeah you know right the crazy (laughs) thing is uh, i just uh i mean for years i worked so i worked so so hard to get my equity card as an actor and like get my insurance through my union and all that kind of stuff and i directed so much last year that I'm going to lose my insurance from my from oh. my actors' equity. Oh, because directors card. aren't in that, right? Because it's, it's a totally different uh, union. Right. 
Um, so it was like my directing career is so successful that it's costing me insurance. <laughs> yeah, I know. Man. It's it's a it's such a weird world. It's we a weird live world. In, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. Well, let's do a quick let's fire round fire of round. Um, headlines. 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 First one: scooters or no? Yeah. The electric scooters. Oh. Scooters or no? No. No? I say no. <laughs> All okay, right. Great. Fair no. enough. <laughs> I'm a native Portlander. I say no. <laughs> <laughs> you, get, you get four votes for that. Okay, great. Fantastic. So you have not ridden any of the scooters yet? I have not, no. I do feel like you need to try them. I'm, I I feel like I would be a hypocrite if I did. I feel like now I'm so You've passionately. Dug in. <laughs> I've dug, dug in, in. And now if I'm on one, I feel like that's just... I'm, that's just like I'm such a hypocrite if I do that. All right, Did yeah. you see they have sit down ones that look like little motorcycles of, now? Of as of this weekend, do. of course they it's do. gonna be it's gonna be an oh issue. God, it's gonna be an issue. Yeah. Oh. All right. <laughs> there you go. What else do we have? Um, oh, this is just kind of an interesting thing. Uh, so Genius, the website, uh-huh. uh, they hit a Morse code message in their song lyrics online because they were trying to prove that Google was copywriting their their song lyrics. So it just kind of goes to this larger idea of like. Big brother. Yeah. 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 Right. It, you know, and then let me also point out the irony that you directed this play <laughs> and you have an Alexa sitting there. <laughs> we unplugged the Alexa just for the recording of this podcast <laughs> so we could talk shit about her. No, I so know. She doesn't know anything about it. No, it's like, it, right. It's that, that, that's the world we live in now. It's yeah. like you can rage all you want against it. And yet, like, I can rage all I want against the scooters, but they're coming. You know, it's yeah, like they're, they're here. Okay. And eventually you'll be on one. I know, right? <laughs> eventually I will. It, it, will like, it will make sense it, one day. Right? Yeah, totally. I have to get across town, but it's so crowded let me stop traffic i try (laughs) i try hard to be a luddite and i can't i just can't (laughs) yeah yeah. i will say that i uh i hopped a scooter just to you know because first of all when you're going to tech you almost never want to bring your car because you're parking all day in portland right it's going to either cost money or be impossible and um i was like you know what i'll just do a scooter you know and it took me eight minutes to get all the way downtown and then i was able to um I mean, park it, and I only paid like maybe a dollar eighty. I think it was what I paid. Whoa, dollar eighty for like several. I think a couple miles. So I think it's worth it if you. <sighs> Is you this know. podcast sponsored by a scooter Brought company? Brought you by Lime Scooters. <laughs> Actually, no, absolutely. Yes. Not. If if they pay us, um, <laughs> if you're listening, Lime. <laughs> oh, so uh, I also saw that uh, Portland Postmates workers joined a nationwide Saturday protest of a pay cut recently. So what do you think about this gig economy? Do you think that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm down, to- I'm down on the gig economy. I mean, again, it's one of those things where it's like, it, it becomes so ubiquitous. You have no choice, but to use it. It's like cab companies are going to be gone soon. So you have to use Lyft or Uber, but I think it's up to us to like hold these companies accountable because they shouldn't get the benefits of these industries that they disrupt right. without actually having to take responsibility for the workers whose yeah. well yeah and then they jobs and benefits dismantle and, our unions right exactly. everyone's forcing everyone into private contractorships yeah right. everything now which is crap yeah they just yeah. want us all to do our own taxes yeah. which is awful it's bullshit you. yeah all right uh do you have any uh plugs anything you want to shout out i think people need to definitely go see our ruined house which is uh, portland experimental theater ensemble's newest show it yes, opens yes. in a couple of weeks i think um and i say that mostly because the entire almost the entire design team for arlington also is designing this show awesome. <laughs> and so if you Strong design. yeah right if Strong you like their design. work which you will if you go and see arlington um or if you saw it then you're definitely gonna like what they do with our ruined house so nice. go check out their work 
And I'll plug that too because I have a faceless cameo in it at one point. I'm in a black bodysuit. You won't be able to tell it's me in a video. Don't worry. You won't see it. I know those moves anywhere. Yes. <laughs> I actually am working with pretty much the same design team on um, Mrs. Pemberley at uh, PCS. Um, do you know that I'm in Mrs. Pemberley at oh, PCS? Great. Oh, that's going to be exciting. I'm playing Darcy. Oh, of course you are. Yeah, yes. Can't you tell? <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, let me plug that. Yeah, right. come see Mrs. Pemberley. Christmas at Pemberley? Yeah. Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley. Yes. That's what it's it, called. It's a, it's a long title. Yeah. Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley. That's what it's called. That's, yeah. Good. Yeah. good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Directed by n- new artistic director at PCS, Marissa Wolf. Yeah. Very exciting. Actually, yeah. Big shout out there. Yeah. Um, great. Well, thank you for, uh, you know, giving us some time to talk yeah, to you. Yeah. I appreciate it, you guys. Thanks for coming yeah. and talking to me. If you have Absolutely. another project, we'd love to have you back. I would love to. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to have many. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> Let us know. Great. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks. If you uh, enjoyed the podcast, you can uh, share it or like it and um, let people know. Yeah. And let people know. Thanks, guys. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> and I see only a few of the people making the journey further into the city. I've watched them disappearing in the towers, going about their work like me. <laughs>